see all these smiling, awake, caffeinated faces. Let's get started. I'd like to draw everybody's attention to Eli's nice haircut and what a wonderful job Christopher's doing. Fantastic. Super proud. And Great Grandpa has a comment, but his his voice isn't working. It's a little rough on him. He said some of the nicest singing that he's heard. He said it was just great this morning. I told on you. I told on you. Closer and closer to the end of this ever going series I've been working on. What you said about sex. Today, we're going to talk about the eternal state of the wicked. Uh, we are coming to the last lesson in this series, in which we will examine that which is the last thing any Christian would ever want to consider as their eternal fate. And that is the eternal state of the wicked. And yet, if we are to faithfully proclaim the whole counsel of God, it's unfortunately necessary to speak of. Uh, we've got to speak of the righteous indignation of God and the place that is prepared for those who reject the gospel of grace offered through His Son, Jesus Christ. It's part of the gospel message, and as we go spreading it, we need to be able to have answers. As we begin, consider the quotation by a guy named Ray Summers, in his book, The Life Beyond. We would do well to remember that we are dealing with terms and an attempt to describe a condition that almost defies description. Or in other words, we're trying to tell people about something that we really have no idea what it looks like, but we've got to tell them what it looks like anyhow. First of all, then, consider what we know about the abode of the wicked. We know that they will be separated from God. That's the first thing we know for sure. Jesus spoke of such separation on several, several occasions. Look at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 21-23. It says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name have done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Lord, I founded this, this great denominational church, and we did all these things. Lord, I didn't go to church, but I told people that Jesus was awesome, as I did all these things that you said not to do. Lord, I was a pretty good guy, I didn't know about that church thing, and I didn't really care about reading your book, but I was a good person, and I told people I liked you. Lord, Lord, I did it anyway except the way that you told me to do it, no matter how good I thought I was being. Depart from me, I never knew you, ye that work iniquity. That's the scariest thing in all of history. In describing the judgment scene of Matthew 25, 41-46, from Jesus again, Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed and everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was a hungered, and ye gave me no meat. I was a thirst, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in, naked, and ye clothed me not, sick and in prison, and ye visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we be a hungered, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? 
Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, and as much if you did not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. And that's a brief, broad description of a classic human element. Well, I did these good things over here. And yet every day you see good things you could have done, and instead of doing the next right thing at every turn, you did the ones that were convenient, or the ones that people would have noticed, or the ones that affected people that you knew, and walked away from opportunities every single day that you could have been Christ-like. <coughs> These passages describe separation from the blessings and fellowship of the Lord's presence. Other passages speak of a similar separation, too. The Bible is universal. If it says something one place, it either repeats it elsewhere, or that elsewhere is silent on that particular subject. No inheritance in the kingdom of God is how we see it in Ephesians. Ephesians 5, 5 says, 5, 5 says, For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater may have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. No inheritance. Once we're grafted into this family, our inheritance is, our inheritance is to be with the Lord forever in a very wonderful place where there's no more tears. But Ephesians, and there's more of a list than just what was in verse 5, has a whole list of common ailments of humanity and suffering from these ailments without striving to follow Christ and walk away from them will cost you your inheritance. It doesn't matter how long you've been a great person or how much of a good Christian you thought you were. Were you doing it the way Christ said? Were you striving every day to be more like Him? Were you actually following what the Bible says or just what some loud mouth told you and you never checked it? Crack your Bibles and make sure. Preachers lie. Preachers are wrong. Bible study teachers lie. They can be wrong. But a good copy of the Bible doesn't lie and it can't be wrong. And if we're following it, these are things we're not going to have to worry about other than being able to tell people about them. Another writer talked about being shut out of the eternal city where the blessings and fellowship with God. Revelation 21-27 There shall in no wise enter in any that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination, or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of God. Revelation 22.15 says, For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters, and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. And so it's just a little white lie. Well, right here in Revelation 22, it says that those who make it lies will also be out there. People rank sins in human mindset, but there is no sin ranking. You're a sinner or you're a redeemed sinner. That's the two rankings. The eternal dwelling place of the unredeemed is hell. The Greek word is Gehenna, and it represents the Hebrew word Gehenna. B.W. Johnson comments, The term Gehenna arose from the valley of Hinnom, south of Jerusalem, where the Canaanites buried human sacrifices to Malik. After the return of the Jews from the captivity, they made it a place of defilement, where, they where the refuse of the city was thrown and burned. The name was applied to the place of future punishment by the Jews. The word is often used in the New Testament and always denotes a place of torture, of future punishment. Imagine... Your society is straight away and you were worshipping false gods and murdering people on behalf of that god and burning their bodies in this nasty place. So then imagine how bad it is already in that place. 
So you don't dare even go there because it's so horrible. So what do you do? You make it into the dump. You put the nastiest things in the city there. And it's just a horrible, nasty, disgusting place. Well, now we need a nickname for the worst place in eternity. Well, we'll just name it after that. Because people need comparisons and parables in order to understand stuff. And everybody can understand that they didn't want to live in this dump where dead bodies were burned and murdered. And it still doesn't do justice to where we would end up. Jesus used the term to describe the final place of punishment in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 21-22 says, His Lord saith unto him, Well done, thou faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. He also that received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents besides them. And this story goes on, and there's a third guy who didn't have very much, and he was too scared and lazy to do anything, so he just buried it in a hole. And the ones who took the time to put in the work were well rewarded, and the one who didn't even care about the gift he was given, it didn't turn out quite so well for him. Verse 29 and 30 say, For unto every one that hath shall be given, and he that, hath, that shall have abundance from him that shall not have shall be taken away even that which he hath. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And as laziness can be looked at a lot of different ways, they use the example of somebody who had a chance to do some investing and working and didn't do anything. But laziness could just be not doing that good deed you know you can do, not taking the time to pray, not taking the time to read. Church isn't that big of a deal, I just don't feel like going. The list goes on and on and on and on. But these simple things in our mind could be the very lazy act that could get us into the outer darkness. Because we're supposed to be dedicated with our whole person to the Lord and not just a couple hours a week scattered throughout the week. When sending his apostles on the limited commission, Matthew 10, 28, it says, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. And again, here's part out of this verse, is that being separated from the Lord in eternity lands you in hell, which of course will be thrown into the lake of fire when eternity hits. And a warning against personal stumbling blocks, Matthew 18, 8 and 9. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from hence. It is better for thee to enter into life halted or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet and being cast in everlasting fire. If thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes and being cast into hell fire. And he's not necessarily saying, oh, you did bad things with your hand, cut them off. Oh, you were looking at horrible, naughty things with your eyes, pluck them right out. The point he's trying to make is get yourself under control because you literally would be better to live this life blinded with your arms and legs cut off than to spend eternity in hell. And if it comes down to that being what it took for you to get your sinning under control, it would be well worth it compared to what you're going to lose in eternity. Perhaps the most vivid use of this term is in Mark 9, 43-48, which, which we just read. It's the most vivid use. Uh, we just read it out of Matthew, and in Mark it says, If thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It's better for thee to enter into life main, having than having two hands into hell, into the fire, that never shall be quenched. He goes a little further into it to stress, The fire shall never be quenched. Verse 44, where their worm dieth not, and fire is not quenched, 
if I put a fin in cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that never shall be quenched. Where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes, and be cast into hell, where the, where the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. We've all been burned at one time in our life. We ate pizza that was hot. We drank a little coffee that was hot. We touched fire one way or another. And that goes away after a short time. The immediate burn is gone almost immediately because your reflexes pull you away. And after several days, the mild burn has healed, or if it's a little bit more severe of a burn, maybe it might be a few weeks or a few months. But this is a fire that doesn't go away. You take that worst burn you ever thought of, you magnify it by thousands, and it's all around you in the whole room, everywhere you can see, everything you can fathom to touch or to run to, and it doesn't go out. There's no fire department coming. It's hotter than any fire you're used to, and it keeps burning, and you just don't die. The pain doesn't go away. You don't pass out because it hurts so much, and you don't die ending your misery. You just continue to enjoy this everlasting, hurtful pain. Jesus evidently used this word, which spoke to his contemporaries, the horror and abomination of the eternal destiny awaiting the wicked. This place called hell was originally prepared for the devil against his angels. We read about that in Matthew 25. But it will serve as a place of punishment for the wicked as well. That ought to tell you just how bad he made it. The devil and his angels had this little uprising, thought they could take over heaven, and this is the place that was prepared to punish them for all of eternity. And that's the same place that we'll go to share with them. The eternal dwelling place is called the Lake of Fire, where the beast and false prophets of Revelation are thrown. Revelation 19.20 And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophets that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast into alive into the lake of burning fire with brimstone. Where the devil, Satan, himself, will one day be cast. Revelation 20.10 and the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophets are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. This same is said for death and Hades themselves, and all whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, or in other words, all those who don't accept Christ as their eternal Savior. Revelation 20, 14, and 15, And death and hell were cast into the lake and fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. But basically, we're all already on our way to this lake of fire, but when we accept Jesus Christ, he adds our name into his book. And it's like this exclusive guest list for this door off to the side, if you look at it in human terms, where you get to skip that gate to hell and not go there. Rather than this eternal lake of fire, if you are one of Christ and your name is in this book, you get to go somewhere else, somewhere that we talked about before where we would all much rather be. No fire, no wishing we could just die again and have it be over with and be in nothing. No torment, no flame, no sharing a room with the devil. If we're Jesus's and we're in his book, we get to go to the much better place that we're not even talking about this week. The future residents of this place are also described in Revelation 21.8. The fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the whoremongers, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars 
shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Oh, it doesn't matter if you're fearful, unbelieving, a murderer, or telling little wet li white lies this verse puts you all in the same category. And it says you're headed right to the lake of fire. Does that mean, oh, I messed up today, I've been working really hard, and I got scared and told a lie, and I'm doomed to hell, and there's no hope for me now? No, that means you stumbled, you've fallen, you take Jesus' hand, you get back up, and you do better tomorrow. That's the difference. People say, you're a Christian, you can't do that. No, I'm a Christian, I don't want to do that. But as a human being, it's going to happen, and it makes me feel horrible inside, and I'm going to work to change it. Such is the place that God has prepared for the eternal destiny of the wicked. To appreciate further the horror of this place, consider the experience of the wicked. We have seen that the idea of separation is involved... What such separation from God can be like, no one in this life can really know. For everyone in this life experiences a degree of God's presence. Acts 17.28 For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. So the physical blessings of the sun, the rain, all the good things around us, blessings within our personal lives, are all manifestations of God's presence in our lives. Matthew 5.45 says that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh the sun to rise on evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. So everybody good and evil at this point experiences to some degree the Lord's presence in their life, whether they admit it or accept it, is irregardless. It happens. But perhaps those who drift furthest away from God in this life have an inkling of what it must be like. Those in this life who drift away from God ultimately experience despair. These are the people who end up being the most unhappy and depressed. They seek other gods such as riches or fame or career or whatever they seek. They've got this empty God-shaped hole in their heart and it never is filled and they never feel whole. Even as Jesus experienced a sense of being forsaken when he suffered that momentary separation from God while bearing the sins of the world on the cross. Matthew 27, 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He didn't cry out through most anything else that they did. But in that moment of separation, he cried out because it was more horrible than any of the torment he had experienced thus far. Psalm 21.1, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? If we've ever experienced separation from a loved one, perhaps we could get just the tiniest bit of understanding of what eternal separation from God must be like. A term commonly used to, to describe the experience is death. Romans 6.23 says the wage of the sin is death. Revelation 21, 11 and 20:14 says it is called the second death. So we know that the experience of the wicked is not simply physical death, which means the first death, since physical death is a separation of body and spirit. We're all going to get that one, good, evil, or whatever else we think we might be, but it's either good or evil. It is natural to concede that the second death is a separation of one soul from God. The eternal destiny is described as destruction, an everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord, 2 Thessalonians 1.9, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. This is the second death we're talking about, to have everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. 
our, our ability to be present with the Lord will be destroyed in an everlasting manner. Whose end is destruction. Philippians 3.19 Whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame. Who mind earthly things. The people who are so worried about earthly things going on around them that they don't have time for the Lord. There's actually a pretty good meme online. It's got six blocks. The first one's got a young guy running around doing stuff too young to think about God. And then it's got a guy working through his career too busy to think about God. And then it's got an old guy in a cane and he's too old to think about God. And then it's got a tombstone and it says it's too late to think about God. We only have a brief amount of time on this earth to think about the Lord and what he's offering. And when we get to that last block in the cartoon, there's no more time. It's too late to think about God. The idea of destruction doesn't quite... It does not require the idea of annihilation. Something can be destroyed but not annihilated. If you crash a car into a wall, it's destroyed, but you can still put it back together. You drop it in a smelter and melt it down and separate all the pieces that are left over, you might use some pieces to make something else, but it's never going to be that same car again. Something can be destroyed but not annihilated. It can just as easily describe the condition of existing in a state of total ruin. The next description would confirm that annihilation is not under consideration here. It's also described as everlasting punishment. The punishment for the wicked is as everlasting as the life given the righteous. Matthew 25, 46, And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The wicked will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.9 again that we just read. So they too are going to receive eternal life, but which eternal life do you want? A happy, flourishing one with the greatest possible blessing of all time, or one where you're in an absolute torment, left with nothing but your pain, and the memory of all the chances you had to become one of the Lords, and you thought, <laughs> I don't want that. It's further spoken in terms of outer darkness, as, the, as, the, as in the punishment of the unthankful servant, Matthew 25, 30. Cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the punishment reserved for false teachers in 2 Peter 2.17. There are wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest, to whom the mist, the mist of darkness is reserved forever. Jude 1.13. Raging waves of the sea foaming out their own shame. Wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. This is a darkness like you wouldn't think of before. You get up in the night, there's just a little bit of starlight coming to the window, and you can kind of see it, and you stub your toe, and you think, man, this is horrible. We're talking about a darkness so thick you can feel it. If you were to have a little flashlight, it wouldn't go far enough to do you any good, because it's so dark it would simply consume it. A darkness that no human being could ever even fathom. There are other terms in use, like the one we just read, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus used these expressions several times. In Matthew 25.30, he said, Weeping and gnashing of teeth. In 24.51, he said, And shall cut him asunder and appoint him his portion and the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And again in 22.13, Bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him in outer and darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When such terms as these are used, it is difficult to accept any view that suggests the wicked will simply 
be no more. Simply disappear. If you put an item into a hot enough flame, it disappears. It is no more. There's nothing left of it. There's no remnant of it. You can't find it anymore. It's not that you've thrown it into the ocean and it sunk to the bottom. It still exists then. No, that would be annihilated. But if you just beat it up with a hammer, it still exists. It's just not doing so hot. We aren't talking about annihilation. We're talking about an eternity wishing annihilation was what had gone on. Finally, it is described in terms of fire. The fire of Gehenna. The lake of fire. A fire that is never quenched. A fire of indignation which devours but does not destroy out of existence. That was Hebrews. Hebrews 10, 26, 27. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for the judgment of fire indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. To some degree, we must take these terms that describe the destiny of the wicked as figurative. And we're talking about some prophetical books here. But how can you have darkness where there is fire? Uh, and how can you have worms where there is fire? Well, whether it be his wrath or his love, there's still the power of God to consider here. But either way it goes, whether these are prophetical or literal, is irregardless. They are terms anyone can relate to which describe something we cannot possibly comprehend with our finite minds. A place of punishment reserved for those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, as they said in 2 Thessalonians. It's a natural, it is natural to revolt against any idea such as hell, but unfortunately many have revolted by trying to deny the reality of hell and sought to offer some other destiny of the wicked beyond this life, but one cannot define away hell without belittling either the terribleness of sin or the holiness and justness of God. And we can't belittle either one of these things. Sin is horrible, and the Lord is holy and just. We can't change that. It's like if I try to pick somebody out of the crowd and say, your red shirt is purple, I can say it all I want, all it shows is I've missed kindergarten. It doesn't change the color of your shirt. Saying the Lord is not holy and just just shows your biblical ignorance and picking any sin that the Bible condemns and saying that it's not terrible is just scary. Because if you truly believe that, then you're not going to flee that sin and that will be the accepted sin that probably causes your downfall. A much better way to react to the truth concerning hell is to accept God's saving grace offered through His Son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to save us all from hell. Is that prophetical or is that literal? Well, who cares? I accepted Jesus Christ. If I ever find out it will be because we can see from heaven. I'm not going there. I'd rather follow the Lord. That's where we really ought to boil it down to as we try to figure out where we're going in our eternal walk. <coughs> Seems like a big pill to swallow, but at the end of the day, it's really not. They say the Bible's written on a fifth grade level, and the amount of pain we're talking about, we can all understand that it's worse than anything we've ever expected to think about in our lifetimes, and that we don't want to see it in our eternity. This is why we offer the invitation every chance that we get, whether we're in this building or not, it's always open. If you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you die today, you're going to hell. Or you're a little bitty kid. Two-year-olds don't got to worry about that yet because they don't understand any of the stuff I'm flapping my jaws about. If you are a Christian and you've got anything you've got to get set right, the invitation's there for that also. That happens. We're not perfect. And it really doesn't matter what need you have. If you have need, 
your family's here for you, and as always, the Lord is here for you, it would be a good time to respond as we all stand and sing.